It's Easter. This is the big day of the year for the church worldwide. Nothing compares with it because nothing compares with the resurrection. We're talking today about the restoration of all things, which is tied to the resurrection. And I want to refine that a bit by saying it's the restoration of all good things. If it's good, it's going to be restored. If it's not good, it's not going to be there. Resurrection is not some isolated event about just personal bodies rising again to continue to live. There are many connections. It would take a number of sermons to cover them all. It's not just about bodies. It's also a proof of Messiahship. Try to imagine the whole story of Jesus, including the birth and uh, the ministry, the, the trial, the crucifixion, with no resurrection. Think about that. The things that are attached to the resurrection are unbelievable. He would have been just another Messiah, pretending Messiah, and forgotten. And there were a number of them before Jesus came along. My favorite one, I forget his name, either Judas or Thutis. Uh, he declared himself to be a Messiah, gathered all these uh, followers of his, and his, he was going to inaugurate his Messiahship by dividing the Jordan River. So I got to imagine this scene there. Everyone's gathered by the Jordan River, all the hundreds of people, and uh, he's there, uh, probably gave a big speech beforehand, turned around, faced the Jordan River, raised his arms, and said, Jordan, divide. Well, unfortunately, nothing happened uh, except the Romans came in and put him to the sword, and he was gone, and all his followers were gone. That would have been happened to Jesus. Now, what, no one would have written about Jesus had he not resurrected from the dead. He would have been just another in the long line of fake messiahs. Even though he was a miracle worker, there were other miracle workers in the ancient world. It is a guarantee of our resurrection. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is a guarantee that we will rise from the dead too. We'll have a body like his. And it's not some mythology. It happened in time and space and with many witnesses. Also, it's a restoration and a rescue of the earth and the cosmos. Our eternal home is where we're going to be. In physical bodies, on a physical earth, in a physical universe. Um, I'll talk later about the going to heaven business. It signals a change of human life and history on the planet. But it's not less physical than what we experience now. It's super physical, if you can try to imagine that. Restoration, let me, let me just cite a few passages here from the New Testament about restoration. And there are many of them, but I've, I've chosen two of my favorites. Matthew 19 is one. Jesus said to them, his disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now the phrase new world in Greek is simply literally again born. Born again. In the born again world. We talk about people being born again individually. Well, he's talking about the earth being born again, regenerated. And then in Acts 3.21, uh, there, he says that he must remain in heaven, Jesus, until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. The phrase, the final restoration of all things, six words, uh, is encapsulated in Greek in one word. Kind of a long word. Um, the Greeks did kind of like what the, uh, what the Germans do. They jam a bunch of words together like train cars. And it's one long word. That's what this is. It's uh, three words jammed together. It's pronounced apokatosis. Apokatosis. Try to say that three times. Apokatosis. <laughs> and I knew a man in Switzerland who, who wrote a Ph.D. dissertation on that one word. Apokatosis. 
And that's what it means, the restoration of all things. I'll talk more about that now. Every person who loves God and Jesus and the kingdom of God will have no end. Yes, there will be a minor bump on the road called death, but there is no end. No end. Uh, families, who wants to say goodbye to their family members, their loved ones? Nobody wants to say goodbye to them. But there is a great difference between believers and unbelievers when it comes to funerals. I've done hundreds of funerals in my life, and you can see the profound difference between people who gather there when they know that their loved ones and they will be together in the kingdom of God. A totally different category of grief that are exhibited between the two, the two people, two groups. Society is a gathering of persons, but death is not the end of society. It rather is the beginning of an eternal society. So if you like groups, you like people, uh, you like parties and, and gatherings and so forth, uh, this will last forever. The earth, now this is one of the most surprising things, is that many, and if not most people in the world, believe in the model of going to heaven. You know where you... Um, you die and eventually the earth is, uh, just, is destroyed and all of us are going to rise up into a spirit heaven. Uh, portrayed on movies and TV as a kind of a gauzy world. Everyone's walking around in white clothes, going every which direction. It's like an office. <laughs> it's not very attractive. You don't even know what they're doing. Uh, but this is not going to heaven in spirits we're talking about. Nothing like that in the Bible. Rather, the heaven is going to come down, as it said in Revelation 21, which you just read. Heaven will come down and once again fuse with the earth, meet the earth where God and His presence with us on a physical, restored earth. Now, I want you to imagine the most beautiful, stunning, magnificent scene you've ever witnessed in creation. Maybe it's in an ocean. Uh, for me, it's Pacific Ocean with the rocks and the giant waves exploding against the rocks and so on. Um, it may be the Alps in the winter. It may be some fantastic valley full of animals. I mean, what, imagine the one thing that you have thought is the best, most wonderful, magnificent scene in your life. Have you ever heard anybody say, or have you ever said, oh, well, God, I think you could have a little bit better than that. You could, you could improve that a bit, you know, put the different colors over there and maybe some different plants. And, no, that's not quite as good. Um, and... Uh, God never said, you know, I, I, I'll do better next time. He did his best the first time. What did he call creation after he made it? Remember? What was his verdict of creation? Good. In fact, it was very good. It was excellent. It was superb. It was first class. He didn't have to redo it better the next time because he did it the best the first time. And he was very happy with his creation. And he likes his creation. He likes the people, likes the animals, likes the trees and the waterfalls and, and the plants. And, and don't you love spring too? Just looking out there, we have tr trees just outside of our window. Uh, we, li we live in a tree house. <laughs> We're the second floor up and trees all around. And we've been watching these little buds just a week ago. Nothing but little buds. And then in one week, explosion, these little, now they're the size of your fist. Wonderful green, light green spring leaves, which I absolutely love. This is my favorite, favorite season. God did the best, and he wants to restore the same thing. 
It's not, he's not going to throw it away and do something better. He liked it the first time. He's going to restore what he made, and you can subtract from that all the evil and the corruption and the decay and everything else. It's going to be gone. The universe, sometimes we have trouble imagining a universe being restored because we don't have much to do with it, we think, um, directly. Um, seems a little remote to us. But what it means here is all creation. God is going to restore all creation. Everything that he made that was good. If it's good, it's eternal. If it's evil, it's not. Think through that sometimes, and uh, leads to a lot of different, very interesting uh, perspectives on life. But we can uh, come to and, and see these, what I would call pre-restorations, or little resurrections, uh, in order to help us believe that there will be one major one at the end. Because we have to know. It's important to know. One will be uh, Jerusalem and Babylon. You probably remember reading your Bibles that uh, God was judging Jerusalem because of their really absolute wickedness. And uh, they're carried off into Babylon and they become uh, captives. Now, I want to read something you've probably read many times before. This will be on a uh, greeting card or something. Jeremiah 29, 13, 11 to 13. He says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Well, that's not good news by itself because he's making a promise to people who are going to be swept into Babylon for 70 years and suffer. And then at the end of the 70 years, the promise comes true. So it helps to know the context of this, of this passage. Uh, and by the way, Jeremiah knows what's going on here. In fact, uh, everyone this was said to originally was not alive probably 70 years later. And uh, neither was Jeremiah, by the way. But God said something to Jeremiah, which is kind of surprising. All the stuff's going on in Jerusalem. Places burning down, the walls are being broken down, people are dying in the streets, they're starving. It's an absolute horrendous mess there. And God says, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, what, Lord? He says, buy property. And Jeremiah says, what? All this stuff going on? You want me to buy property? Yes. Because I'm going to promise that when I restore this place, you're going to have this property in your family line, and they're going to prosper and have joy and have figs and oranges and fruits and everything. It's going to be a great day. Buy it now, because you'll need it later. That's how sure his promise was to his people. Guaranteed promise. Now, the Reformation, uh, which happened in the, about 500 years ago, was a restoration of the first century theology and gospel. It restored what we call the five solas. Solas mean alones. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. This was a restoration of all these things which we now celebrate. Uh, or the Berlin Wall. And I talked about this before. I won't talk about it again. But it's because of a church in Leipzig the Nicholas Church, St. Nicholas Church. Because of them, um, the Berlin Wall was torn down because of a prayer group that started there eight years before 1989, and they prayed for eight years. And each time toward the end, that last year, they prayed and prayed, and people started joining them. And pretty soon you had 50 out of eight people 
uh, from eight, and then you have 100, and then you have 200, and then you have 1,000. And I think they had something like 17,000, no, 70, 70,000, 70,000 people came to the prayer meeting and they marched around the city of Leipzig, holding candles and praying. They weren't angry, uh, but they just walked through the police guards. And what do you do with 70,000 people? He's let them go. And that was the beginning of the end of the Berlin Wall. Prayer. Uh, now, the, you probably heard of the life after death uh, science. At one time, it was kind of a fringy thing where only uh, crackpots uh, seemed to be interested in it. A woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was kind of the founder of it. And um, now it's an established, recognized science, thanatology, from thanatos, the Greek word for death. It's a study of people who die, and they go through this period of death, sort of, uh, their body rises to the ceiling. They can move in different departments of the hospital. They can look down on top of the machines and remember the, the serial number of the machines and then come back and tell their story. There's so much evidence now, this is no longer a joke. It's no longer even doubtable. Um, in fact, Gary Habermas, who's writing his huge book on resurrection now, includes a number of these, these uh, documented accounts because you can, you can no longer toss it aside. It, it's real, plenty real. Years ago, it, it was kind of, you know, I wonder, but, but not so now. It's hard evidence, says Gary Habermas. The church lives by resurrection and restoration. This is the life of the church. It's what keeps it alive. That's why we're here. Jesus rules and reigns as the risen Christ. I love that little dog there. <laughs> Reminds me of, will he be in the restoration? You bet. <laughs> God likes dogs and cats and all the animals he made. He doesn't want to throw them away. Jesus rules and reigns as the risen Christ, and therefore it robs death of its sting. And let's face it, death stings. When your loved one dies, it stings, and it stings for a long time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you probably heard of, German theologian, World War II. April 9th, 1945, He's sentenced for execution and the gallows, 77 Aprils ago. And as he's standing there on the gallows, these are the last words he spoke. He said, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. And right at that moment, the floor dropped out and he passed into the kingdom of God. But that's nice. That's good. That's wonderful to have this hope, isn't it? But how can we be sure that it's real? This is the big question. How can we know? How can we have this certainty that it's real? Sure of resurrection. Sure of the restoration of God's creation and earth. We have to know because our witness depends on it. Now, we can do a lot of history studies, and there's lots of evidence, historical evidence for the resurrection, plenty of it. In fact, this, uh, this Gary Habermas I was talking about, his book, At Last Count, is 15,000 pages. <laughs> I can't imagine anybody publishing it. Uh, but it's huge. That's how much evidence he's found for the resurrection of Jesus. There's a man named Richard Swinburne, who's a philosopher, specializes in probability theory. And he took all the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, put it through his computer system and his models and all the rest, and concluded 
that, in fact, reported first time at Yale University, shocked everybody. He said, the chances of the resurrection of Jesus taking place prob probability-wise is 97%. Made everybody mad there because they didn't like it. Still, it makes them mad <laughs> last time I checked. But even 97% is not good enough, is it? I don't want my eternal destiny to be determined by 97%. Um, kind of like an airline saying, you know, 97% um, of our airliners will land safely. You know, that's not good enough, is it? Um, the reason we can know, because it's, we're dealing with a relationship. And a relationship, um, how do you know any relationship is true and reliable and, and faithful? How do we know that our spouse is going to be faithful on our wedding day? We can guess and we can put money on it, but we don't know until you go the distance. How do you know a friend's going to be true and reliable and faithful? You don't know. Um, how do you know your police partner is going to be with you in a gunfight and doesn't run away? Or a fellow soldier? Or an employee? Or anyone? How do you know anybody is going to be reliable and faithful and true? And one thing that life teaches us is that time and experience tell us if a relationship is true or not. Time and experience. I read a number of biographies of famous atheists, and uh, they had one thing in common, that they all declared themselves to be atheists at a, about the age of 14. Now think back. You're 14. How much did you know about anything? <laughs> I didn't know anything when I was 14. I didn't care about anything. Sports, you know, fun, that kind of stuff. Uh, I couldn't have declared myself anything. 14. Maybe some could. But I keep thinking it's strange at the age of 14. Why? What you do there, one of the problems there is that when you're 14, you leave the church, you have a certain 14-year-old understanding of the gospel and the Bible and God. And then you have, you're 30 years old, 35, you have a PhD in philosophy or something. Then you're comparing your 30-year-old understanding of philosophy or science with your 14-year-old understanding of God and the Bible and the church. It doesn't, doesn't make up. You can't, it doesn't work out that way. Just not good. Um, and when I started college, I had some friends around me who I told they were, we were all telling what we were going to do for life, and I told them I was going to be in Christian ministry. It wasn't good news for them. Uh, and regarding my faith, they said, um, you will experience greater and greater disillusionment and disappointment until you toss the thing out down the road. That was their prediction, prophecy of me. But exactly the opposite was true. The more experience I had, the longer I lived, the more I knew it was true. Now, many atheists come to faith later in years because they have more experience, have more, more time pass by. And there's a man named Pincus Lapide, historian, who believes in the resurrection of Jesus, but he rejects Jesus. He doesn't think he's the Messiah. He doesn't think he's the Son of God. Nothing. But he said, I, I believe you're resurrected from the dead just following the evidence where it leads. That kind of interesting uh, theory, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> I was kind of struggled with that one. But uh, he's convinced resurrection took place and he's not my Messiah. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite writers, wrote this. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. All these things 
about the reliability of people or the reliability of Jesus and the resurrection and the restoration and all that comes on the road of faith. It takes time. You walk on the road of faith for years and you start building up a catalog of things, experiences like answered prayer. Something that's so remarkable you say to yourself, this couldn't possibly be just a trick of some kind. And these things build up. Many answers to prayer. Rescues. Our family has been through some amazing rescues that we couldn't possibly even posit that it was chance. Or healings, restorations. Or unbelievable coincidences. I think God likes coincidence more than miracle because he likes doing that all over the place. Uh, he likes you to put something in your pathway that causes you to think, wait a minute, this, this throws me off balance here. How, how do you do that? I, I, don't, I don't know how that works. Um, but he loves coincidence, and we've had many, many of them. So I'm suggesting here we read biography, Christian biography, find out what other people have experienced and how long it took them. Read the Bible or talk to Christians, contemporary Christians, and ask them things that they've gone through and why they're so sure and why they're not. Because but God's plan is always better, it's always more, it's never less than we expect. Now we speak of uh, seasons of life, don't we? I was raised to think of in the spring of life, you're born and you're young, spring of life. Summer, prime time, you know, beaches, friends, parties, good times, school, what have you. Um, and then Fall comes, leaves get a little, you know, faded away. And uh, I won't say what age that is, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. And then winter comes and you die. And that's the final stage of, of life. But the gospel, God's last word to us is not winter. It's spring. Spring is the last word. It's the last phase of life where you are reborn and given this whole fantastic new paradise, which sounds impossible when you first hear about it, and as the years go by, it's not impossible at all. The certainty and the truth of the resurrection and restoration grows only as you walk toward the light, and it diminishes as you walk away. It's a fact of life. Polycarp, bishop of about 155, A.D. was being pursued by the secret police because he was a leader of a Christian group and uh, finally caught. He wasn't trying to be caught. He didn't want to be a martyr. Uh, but they found him. And so when they found him, he uh, was very kind and he made a big meal for the, for the officers. And they said, look, you have this nice dinner and I'll be over here. I'll be praying. And then we, off we go. Um, so he did. And they said, look, they liked him. He said, look, all you have to do to be set free is just renounce Christ. Just say it. I renounce Jesus. That's all you have to say. Done deal. You're free. And he said, for 86 years, Jesus has done nothing but good for me. Just good. That's all. I couldn't possibly walk away from him now. Inconceivable. Couldn't do it. I have a physicist friend who's about my age, and he said, and he says this after a number of years, it would be impossible for me not to believe. Impossible. I can't help but believe because of all the things I've experienced and seen over all these years. One of the few advantages of being old. 
There aren't many, but there are a few. This is one. Experience and time, and you find out who your friends are and who they're not. That's interesting too. That's another sermon. Here's a takeaway. Jesus gives us only two ways. It's the famous two ways of the Bible, way of life and the way of death. And he says, take the path of life. Take the path of life because there's no option three. There's life or death. This is the one of the options. This is the only option for life. And rarely in life do we get this kind of clarity. Think about that. We can't get this clarity without anything. But we do here. He tells us it's this way or that way. There is no third way. And he says, pursue it. It's waiting for you. And for anyone who wants it more than anything else.